I'm Nicoline Berger and I'm Jana Vosloe and this is Eret. Welcome to another episode of Eret Podcast, the podcast where an artist and a philosopher meet to share ideas about the world. <laughs> yes, so in this episode, we spoke to our wonderful friend Georgie Fisher about the relationship between architecture, interior design, objects and wellness. You can look forward to us airing out ideas about the Danish concept of Hugo, the architecture of happiness, and then also some stories about Nicoline's bath experience in Korea, um, my pink bookshelf, and how breaking glasses can bring people together. So before we jump into the episode, we would just like to say thank you to our new Patreon member, Hela Piens Hugh. We are very, very grateful for your contribution. And if you would like to find out how you can support Eret Podcast financially or otherwise, check the link in our bio. And then lastly, we also have some very exciting news. Um, we want to welcome our latest team member, Margot Lobscher. She will be our square designer. So you can look forward to some fresh layouts and visuals on our Instagram. Um, so go check that out. And then also, if you would like to join our team at Eret, please reach out to us. All the info is in the link in our bio. And enjoy the episode. exciting guest today, Georgie Fisser, and we're going to head straight into introducing her. Georgie studied with me and Jana, um, and we did visual studies together, which was the basic place where this podcast started, that kind of format of visual studies, and she is at the moment working as a brand strategist and pursuing a master's in contextual design. So welcome, Georgie. <laughs> it's so great. We're all sitting here mm. around the table. In Fishuk, it's our first live, all of us being in the same space. Um, so yeah, Georgie, maybe you can tell us a bit about your interest, your, your, on your journey towards pursuing this master's in contextual design. Um, so tell us a bit about what is stimulating your mind at the moment and why and about what do you want to speak of us today? <laughs> Firstly, thanks very much for having me. I'm very honored to be part of it part of your beautiful podcast and I'm very excited to chat to you guys today. Um, Flip, well as Nicolene just said, I'm not actually studying anything design related or architecture related at the moment, but it's definitely always been a passion of mine um, and I'm wanting to pursue potentially a master's in design, still clarifying exactly what that's going to look like and what that's going to be, but um, I've always sort of, I think of myself as always having always had a, like a spatial sensibility and from when I was small like would love putting a, a table together and putting tussie mussies together and like the Christmas tables would be laid, laid with like ivy and <laughs> like little nuggets or like little chocolates in between and linen textures and candles 
Um, so I guess those are like soft skills in a way of, of design and, and space. Um, but I guess it really all started when I came across this book by Alain de Botton called Architecture of Happiness. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure that his, his thoughts exist in the schools of architecture and interior design and feng shui. And, but I, he just articulated um, some key thoughts so beautifully and it was the first time I'd ever heard of spaces or objects being spoken about in that way. Um, and he really speaks to how values can be embodied in architecture and objects and how the role of an architect is to really render vivid to us our true potential and going into what that looks like um, and how political and ethical values can be written into something like a door handle or a cathedral or yeah something mundane as like a window frame um, and how we read certain objects and spaces and, and we'll get into a bit of semiotics Jana will chat to that um, he speaks a lot about beauty and how beautiful spaces we we see values or attributes in those spaces that um, reflect sort of the ideal human experience or again who we would like to be um, or a good life um, so it all sounds very conceptual but just I just thought the way he put it was so beautiful and such an interesting way to think about the spaces we inhabit every day and the objects we use um, and from then it's just been a journey of trying to lock down exactly what this is and what this would look like in terms of further studies or a job it being very sounding very philosophical but um, I watched a episode um, on Ilsa Crawford uh, the series is on Netflix it's called abstract lovely series and she's got an episode there and she runs a um, design studio called studio Ilsa in London um, and she kind of expands a lot on the thoughts that were, were talked about in architecture of happiness um, yeah, and, and I've sort of just come across a master's in contextual design, which also speaks to some of the thoughts that I found in that book. And I mean, I can go on chatting. I'm reading a book on Huga at the moment, and I've looked at a book on materials and meaning and materiality and all of that. Um, yeah, but we can get in more to that, but that's sort of just a brief background to the journey. Yeah, yeah, so this intuitive soft skill for design definitely reflects in Georgie's personal space. There's an intentionality with which you create spaces and arrange objects in spaces. And also you can see that all of the objects you choose in your space comes from this background of really considering what are the things we invite into our private spaces and how does that inform our lives. So Jana, Georgie alluded to this word semiotics. Will you take us into a bit of a background on how we read objects, which is also something she mentioned? Yeah, earlier I was trying to think of a name for like a segment where we quickly do a kind of philosophy one-on-one -on -one rundown of how these ideas were formed. So if you as listeners have a creative idea for what we can call our little philosophy segment <laughs> on Erit, let us know. <laughs> but for now, um, I just also have to attest to Georgie's apartment and the way in which uh, I just have this memory of her grandmother's. Uh, she brought this beautiful green glasses of her grandmother to one of our beach swims in Cape Town and everyone else is drinking from like plastic cups. But we had this beautiful, I don't know if it's crystal, what it was. It's it's a wine glass. A wine. And yeah, so like I always think about Georgie and those objects and that frames kind of our inquiry for today on 
uh, architecture and design and spaces and its connection to well-being. Mm-hmm. The last time I thought about these things it was probably in third year when we studied post-structuralism and post-modernism. Um, and it's good to kind of lean into the history of this of this thought pattern. People in uh, one of the parts of philosophy also called aesthetics, the appreciation of beauty. We spoke about that in our mini-sode. Um, so just to trace some of these key ideas, but also I'm not a specialist in this field, so it's going to be re- really rough. And if there's a post-structuralist philosopher listening, then mm-hmm. yeah, please cover your ears. Cover your ears. Um, so firstly, I think it's important just for listeners to quickly make the distinction between modernism and post-modernism, because there's a lot of confusing terms. We also have structuralism, post-structuralism. Uh, same as we had colonialism and post-colonialism. Mm-hmm. So these kind of concepts speak to a, a historical moment in many ways, in specifically in the very much Western 20th century history, where uh, in the early 20th century you had modernism, very much a German thing actually, mm-hmm. where the ideas it was tied to the Enlightenment and this idea that human rationality has there's like this innate human rationality that through maths and reason and science we can access these innate principles of life. So the there's a there's a specific rule that we gather through abstract abstract thinking and it's not very complicated. It's it's like there's a truth to that. And a lot of this that is true. But then the post-structuralists, and especially after the wars happen, it always goes back to the, the world wars, mm-hmm. um, where things were not as clear-cut as just these innate principles, because all of a sudden, all of these the chaotic remnants of the Second World War, and people started really questioning their ways of being and living on a more uh, existential level as well. And there, the, the post-structuralists and the post-modernists aim to kind of it's almost the same thing, but from a different angle. So they aim to provide a critical position on this, where they moved away from like realism to more abstract things where meaning is a bit more, uh, there's more multiple understandings of the things that give meaning to our lives. And this you can see in art as well, like the Bauhaus movement, which was very much like strict lines or realist art where you draw a picture of a cat and that's art. The, the cat is real versus a, a more postmodern uh, artists would be like Picasso where you see the shapes and the intermingling or even Van Gogh it's not a real picture but like the sky or whatever it, it says a, a different interpretation that speaks to some of the um, loadedness of the way we view the world so okay that's that little thing and then structuralism and post-structuralism is the same so even in language there was this idea that language has this innate characteristic so the word dog or whatever there's a universality to what we all understand as dog but the post-structuralists try to show that that's arbitrary we invented language and language is more complicated than just that and we have different words in different languages to explain the same phenomena so it can't be just this innate principle um, and that's really in the tradition in which the field of semiotics emerged um, so I'm going to read here that semiotics explores how humans use and interpret signs and symbols to communicate, to learn and to develop knowledge. Um, So it has this robust intellectual history 
and all of these philosophers and linguists have really uh, theorized extensively about the nature of science, interpretation, and meaning. And some people trace this semiotics back to the one philosopher, Augustine, but the one that we'll briefly discuss today is a Swiss guy, uh, Ferdinand de Saussure, I can't pronounce that right, but he was a linguist and he's known to be the father of modern linguistics and semiotics. So something that we all learned in visual studies together and in philosophy, it's like one of those go-to things. So this will be a good thing for you to know if ever you run into a linguist. <laughs> what do you call a semitician yeah. at a party? Then you can tell them. There's three things. So because it's the study of signs, first we have to chat about what is a sign. Not just the road sign you see or it's a sign, but a sign is basically something that stands in for something else. So this could be a word, a picture, a song, or a photograph. Um, so the sign is the kind of object that the, the, the sign consists of two parts, according to Saussure. So, um, and I'll use an example now to illustrate this, because I know it sounds a bit confusing. But uh, the sign is basically the whole thing that results from our association of two other concepts, which is called the signifier and the signified. So a signifier is the form which the sign takes. So that's like a material thing. And I'm going to use a dog example because I'm obsessed with dogs at the moment. Not at the moment, always. <laughs> so say now we read on a page the word Cocker Spaniel. Or on my Instagram feed, which is basically just on my search thing, it's just lots of Cocker Spaniels. <laughs> that's a sign. Even like an old British colonial painting of a Cocker Spaniel with the Queen and lots of guns is also a sign. And then the signified is the thing or idea that the person is communicating or trying to evoke through the, through the signifier. So, for example, my desire for comfort and companionship that I now so, so desperately attach to a cocker spaniel, so that when I walk in the ballpark on the street and I see a cocker spaniel and I go and I pet it and I have to talk to the owner, it's not necessarily just about the physical being of cocker spaniels, but there's something that it signifies for me, maybe a certain longing or some deeper feelings that I don't have to <laughs> talk about on this platform. But uh, so there we have kind of the difference between the sign so whenever we see an object or a word, it has both of these uh, entangled in it. It's both what it signifies and what the signified is. So that's a short overview of the kind of philosophical theory that will guide our conversation today. Yeah, and so now I want to ask Georgie um, the question that kind of came out of your journey um, with this soft skill for design and spaces and objects and this understanding of how we essentially project meaning onto objects and spaces. Our question for today is what is the relationship between architecture, design and well-being? So how do you understand spaces and objects and how we understand these signs, these things that are in our life and how it informs well-being? You can take that into any direction. <laughs> Just come and you guys should jump in. So where to start? Um, I think on your whole talk about, about science and, and semiotics, um, Ilse Crawford says that we, we read objects and we read spaces in very complex ways. And it's the designer's job to sort of take into account that we are reading, constantly reading spaces through our senses, um, through sight, touch, smell, um, f um, feeling and textures. Um, 
and that it's it's the project of a designer to critically think about those. Um, also, Ilsa Crawford's big project is to kind of, she says that we predominantly, well, our current um, culture very much is preoccupied with visual representation and um, aesthetics and a lot of people think that interior design is purely just that but she's trying to sort of sort of focus on the fact that we experience spaces and objects um, through the body and she's got a beautiful example of something um, like bathing which which happens all over the world and there's a long history in, in how different cultures bathe and how being in a bath or in a in a sauna or in a bathing room that you get in Budapest um, grounds us physically um, and and brings us back to nature and our physicality and being in a warm or cool um, environment in terms of water that's around you and it slows us down. Um, it allows us to be vulnerable in the space exactly. as well. Yeah, vulnerable because you're mostly naked in these spaces, mm. but it's a very controlled <laughs> vulnerability because you are. It, it's not like you're outside in a, in a dam and it's storming. It's yeah, like you're in yeah. a beautiful space with maybe lighting and candles and it's, you feel quite secure and safe, but mm. you're also able to be vulnerable in, the, in that space. Um, so she speaks a lot to that um, and how we can think about well-being um, in terms of the senses and how we should design for the senses. Um, and then the, um, the Masters in, in Contextual Design, which is... Um, at the Design Academy in Eindhoven and she's got a faculty that she runs there called Man and Wellbeing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they speak about the fact that design can really shape our lives and shape our experiences um, and it can be a catalyst for social change and it can shape the way we behave and what rituals happen in a space or what rituals happen with certain objects. So um, viewing design from that point of view a designer should always ask the question, in what world do I want to live in or in what world does the person I'm designing for want to live in? So taking the person you're designing for and the person's life, the life that's lived in the space into um, account, that's super important. Um, and some questions that sort of, I read the, the blurb on, on this course and some questions that come out and it's very much from the architecture of happiness um, is, what morality hides in the aesthetics of this building or what experience is invited by this um, design. What views, what you can sort of get an idea of what the designer's views are on people, on humanity in a space um, or what larger narratives are implied by a space. So really thinking of design as, as playing a larger role in like a larger mm-hmm. um, narrative or story. I'm literally, I'm, it's funny because Jana and um, Nicolene can see I've just got this massive piece of brown craft paper <laughs> that I've jotted all my thoughts and notes on and it looks completely chaotic. Um, but it's quite funny. I'm just trying to touch on all the things that I, I have on yes. But um, something that I can jump off of from what you said is that in our third episode of season one, we spoke very much about how the design of spaces can influence structures like uh, of power and we're not going to speak on power and discipline today but that's just also a very clear source on how we can illustrate this understanding that the way we build spaces relate into our life 
in most of the time an unconscious way. So we're moving around these spaces and we don't realize how they're inhibiting us in certain ways or making other things possible. So that a way that a, a window frame frames the world from inside a building to outside a building can actually influence the way that you feel when you're in that building versus when you can't see out of the, out of the windows or there's prison bars in front of the windows. Like all these kind of things where we're not really always aware of how everything around us is either allowing us to do something or not allowing us to do something. Yeah. yeah. And that's what also that stands out for me about that morality bit mm. of the spaces where the thing about the ethics and the morality is that there is really this tension between, yeah. you know, what 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 does not contribute to well being or behaving well mm. towards the others in our lives. And I also I I haven't finished the architecture of happiness, but I've read some of it, mm -hmm. um, and I saw also like what what he what Alain de Botton says, where he's like, what does a couple's argument over the style of a couch say about their relationship, mm -hmm. or um, you know what? So there's these things in the way we attach to objects that exposes something about the way we relate to each other, and now it's kind of projected on those objects and I know he also speaks about certain buildings and certain things how it really captures a moment of our society's moral mm. understanding of the time. Mm. And he's got a beautiful thought where he says that we're drawn to objects that have the values that we lack in ourselves mm. and no. if you think about objects in terms of values and you think about the lines and the curves or even mm. in a space um, the difference sort of beyond a signs that you read in a space um, and think about the values that are embedded in those and why we are drawn to, we'll, I think, speak about it at the end, but why I'm drawn to a certain style of mug and why you're drawn to another style of coffee mug or wine mm. glass and, and what is it in those objects that we are reading. And, and also the project of, of sort of spaces and objects and well-being, how does that look different per culture and per context and designing mm. for specific people in specific spaces mm. and thinking about those consciously when you design um, mm. and that the, the materiality comes into that as well. If you applying certain materials to objects or spaces for certain people, um, how what does what are the values embedded in, in wood mm. versus glass versus cement and how age um, affects how you read a material if, if it's slightly if it's, it's kind of come through many years and it's looking slightly old or it's a slightly more organic material versus a very clean modern mm. um, yeah, and yeah. I can relate to that because um, I think we've said it on our social media, but uh, both Nicolene and I recently moved and we used to live um, in a very modern looking apartment, kind of city view, clean cut. I hear a dog barking. Yeah, no, the, it, what is signified now <laughs> is a warm, fuzzy sense of comfort with the dogs. For me, it's irritability. Wow, <laughs> look goodness. there. I've seen on our social media that both Nicolene and I recently moved and both of our moves had a contrast in space. So um, our previous apartment was way more modern materials, a kind of classic grey and uh, very sleek textures overlooking the city, thick but clear windows. 
and now we moved to OBS in like an old house with wooden floors and high ceilings and it cracks and you hear the sounds uh, and and it's the same with Nicoline they lived in OBS and now and yeah. we are where we're sitting we now had, uh, we all work from home so we sat in front of our screens all day but the house was surrounded by a Viber Creek wall and we, we looked into other buildings, we didn't have a view and now our house is sitting on the mountain and we can look out into the landscape and that has significantly changed our emotional well-being and it's made working from home way more sustainable because there's this sense of openness and the sense of being out in the world, even though we're sitting at home working from one spot. So you exactly. feel more connected to the spaces around you when you are able to look out or... Yeah, yeah. and the, and it's the same with the... Because the, our reason for moving was also working from home. I think it's really changing the way we build our, our homes and our offices because now I have a little like private, small private office and... In reflecting on our move, like a lot of my focus was on making that the space of the office was really important to me. And I'm not necessarily, as Georgie, always so inclined on that level of like obsession with, not obsession, that's not an obsession, it's a good thing. But I mean, I, I was really a little bit obsessive about the space. And the one example that I'm thinking now with also that morality tension, that, that values and different with my partner was where he has this bookshelf that he bought like in game like when he was basically living on his own and it was the first piece one of the first pieces of furniture that he ever purchased but it's like basically that like fake wood vibe mm -hmm. uh the one with the all the little compartments that you basically see everywhere from like three years ago and then i had to convince him that i want to paint because it's he it is his possession but it, it, we didn't have space for it in our room so i was like i'm taking this to the office and i'm gonna paint it pink which i'm not even it's not my favorite color but because of nicoline actually her art all yes, has this dirty yeah. pink and nicoline used to tell me how it was an uncomfortable color for her and it's also an uncomfortable color for me but then i through nicoline's art had this like weird feminist slash personal it signifies something else to me now mm -hmm. the color pink than what it did before and I wanted that feeling in my office and I had to paint this bookshelf pink. I, I just knew I had to. <laughs> and now I had to convince my partner that this bookshelf has to become pink. And he was completely unsupportive at first <laughs> because I hope he's not listening now. But it's, he doesn't, for him, the function and it destroyed the original functionality of the, you are going to basically ruin the thing that we purchased that was designed in a particular way. So there you almost see that modernist, postmodernist tension in my own, <laughs> in, our, in our relationship, was all embedded onto this bookshelf, which luckily I can uh, confirm is now pink with lots of objects on it, and I love it. Um, but yeah, it just that also got me thinking a lot about those values that we put on and why we insist, and it's in, in our daily lives. Yeah, for sure. Leon, I wanted to ask you um, about the concept of designing for the senses, because I think what also comes through is that uh, we experience well-being in different ways and in the, like Viana said in the modernist age things were very logical very um, yeah so so what is the difference between designing with logic and de designing for the senses and how does that relate differently into design how would you describe designing for the senses I think it's just about being very conscious about who you're designing for and 
as we've been speaking about the values that you want mm. to embed in the space or the design mm. for who mm. um, and it's taking things into account that are more than just aesthetic mm. I think that's really what designing for the senses is it's, it's not just thinking about how something is visually re represented or rendered it's thinking about how will the person in the space experience it through um, touch through you could even argue taste through smell um, with with textures and colors and certain lighting mm. um, we could go into the the, 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 um, the Danish word for well-being or coziness mm. or togetherness um, hygge and that speaks a lot to to take certain textures mm. in spaces mm. that, that sort of evoke a feeling of well-being um, very very interesting the Danes use lighting and, and they create atmosphere and they bring in um, like warm drinks so it's a lot about pleasure of, of taste and, and things like cakes and croissant all those nice things mm. are add to the feeling of hygge and it's also about being together together mm. with close friends and um, they say that cuddling actually releases oxytocin but mm. hygge like being together in a small group of friends where you feel very safe and secure that also releases the same sort of hormones that you yeah. get when you actually are physically touching Touched. someone even though in a space you're not necessarily mm -hmm. always physically touching each other but um yeah georgia is gesturing to us now <laughs> because we are sitting on moroccan scatter yeah. cushions on the floor this, and so i'm literally going to start eating one of these <laughs> nice chocolate chip cookies that is From also evoking a sense of hygge yeah. you, maybe <laughs> we should break it break. <laughs> do you want some i've had one you go for that do you but want the, some a little bit but um, what I'm also this is very <laughs> Yeah, we are now. The crumbs are on our textures. We are sitting here. It smells nice. <laughs> we're sitting on the floor, um, surrounded by friends, yeah. and we're sitting on a carpet, which is also relating to me to what you're saying about texture. Because when we moved into this house, we decided that the room we're sitting in now we're going to use as a session room for yoga and breath work and all these kind of things that add to balance and well-being, mm -hmm. um, healthy kind of practices. And aesthetically, we chose to put this carpet on top of the carpet that's in the um, room. And it has a beautiful pattern and lovely colors. It kind of picks up all the colors of the art and the things we have in the room. But if you roll around on this carpet when you're doing yoga, it's quite scratchy. Mm. So now we, we made the decision aesthetically, but it's not it's not um, supportive of Hugo at all. Yeah. Because you come and sit here and it doesn't feel comfortable. So that can also allude to sometimes making a decision visually. Like mm. you said, like we're very visually inclined. So you see a carpet. I'm thinking about carpets. Now, Jana bought a carpet the other day. It looked stunning online. They sent it and the texture was this suede texture. So when you walk over it, all the textures captured on the carpet. So it looks like dirty, but yeah. it's not. It's just like yeah. been disrupted. Yeah. Yeah. Like sequins that you flip the one side, the color changed completely. And I had, I returned it because texture yeah, the texture trumped the aesthetic appeal of it in a way that made me uncomfortable. I mean, we can't ignore how important aesthetics are as well, but I think because we, we live in such a, a visual world, um, these designers are sort of going, just, just being conscious of all the other senses um, that can really ground you in a space mm. um, and contribute to a sense of well-being. And I think the, the project now for modern designers is to kind of challenge the market's sort of infinite urge to produce just for the sake of production and, mm. and purely for the sake of aesthetics mm. um, and it's, it's about producing for 
certain values and certain a certain world that we want to live in and that has implications for the environment and the people that make the products and the people that use the products so across the whole so if you if you look at it in a holistic sense across the whole production line of a product or a space being made or the materials being used. So yeah, so there the consciousness doesn't only come in with being conscious for who you're designing and for what purpose you're designing, it's also consciousness of how you are producing this. Exactly. Yeah, you know, and why you are producing it so yeah. that you don't overproduce things. Are we living in a world where we've got so much stuff. sort of stuff mm-hmm. that just pollutes, pointless stuff that just we've been sold that we need. But yeah. you know, actually it's not actually serving a, a valuable purpose in yeah. our lives um, yeah and it's the same with how a beautiful like you don't always want to live in a magazine cover home because it doesn't have that hygge, no, that yeah. gezelligheid yeah. of like what it invites in the space because it can just seem like unapproachable or uh, it's almost too perfect to to live in mm. um, so sometimes the aesthetic vision is interrupted mm. by what promotes a good conversation yeah, or yeah. the fact that you can spill a bit of your Milo on the couch mm-hmm. or, and I'm talking to myself because I always spill <laughs> Milo on the couch. And it's lovely, just before you speak, in Huga it's it's all about equality and togetherness and mm-hmm. everyone sharing the airtime and, and another, in the, manife- the Huga manifesto, it's like 10 things that make a Huga space. It's like, um, it's called truce and it's basically no drama so you're not going to go into deep sort of political things that might divide um the people you're with but it's about um yeah all being on the same playing field and all sharing some airtime and not mm. feeling sort of uncomfortable and divided so it's just an interesting that's we do interesting. love our philosophical like debates yeah. and our philosophical like, i mean that's an idea that i guess Nicoline and I might love to challenge in some yeah. ways, but also... We challenge it just in generally in spaces because I feel like often when I get into spaces, we tend to steer the conversation into a deeper field that most people are not necessarily as comfortable it's with. It's not going to So be- it is quite cool to have this understanding that in certain spaces we speak about and keep the conversation so that people feel included and... Mm. Um, yeah, and, and not challenged and together. And, and together and not challenged in all of their ways because I mean we look at debate as something stimulating and exciting that brings us together but it can also make people uncomfortable if that's not mm-hmm. I'm, imagine if we go into a Danish home and just start speaking about whatever we want to mm-hmm. it's not a agreed upon kind of yeah. way of being in that space yeah. so that's also maybe where it's context specific because for me and Nicoline Huger might be when we record a very political mm. uh, podcast and there's something happening and there's connection and there's togetherness. But it, it's also that awareness, that consciousness doesn't... That's where the consciousness to the objects is, also the consciousness to each other mm. um, sure. in knowing that space. So that's really interesting. I feel... I, I feel... I want. I saw another quote by Alain Breton that really stimulated um, the part about the the kind of flip side of the moral aspect of design, where he writes, "Bad architecture." is in the end as much a failure of psychology as of design. It is an example expressed through materials of the same tendencies 
which in other domains will lead us to marry the wrong people, choose inappropriate jobs and book unsuccessful holidays, the tendency not to understand who we are and what will satisfy us. Mm-hmm. So there, there's also that thing about the consciousness bit that comes in with almost, it's, it's a deep reflection that our objects can prompt about us. Mm. For sure. And you speaking about, I mean, not everyone has a spatial sensibility. Everyone's got different skills and different um, things that they are interested in and um, drawn to. Um, this is why we need designers to sort of be thinking consciously about these things. Otherwise, we said before, the world would pretty much go to shit. Everyone would be probably struggling with mental health issues. And mm-hmm. um, if it... If, if things weren't consciously designed. Um, yeah, and yeah. I think that's why it's important to consider this because there might be people currently struggling with well-being and yes. um, mental yeah. illnesses and it might be because of the spaces that they live mm-hmm. in, which is, um, I found it very fascinating when you said that we're drawn to objects um, that, that, that have that, values that yes. we lack. How what so in other words then I am feeling cold so I take a cup to put hot, something hot in because I can't hold the liquid in my hands but I want to drink the hot stuff is that the kind of it could be exactly that I mean if you think about two different styles of say we take a chair mm-hmm. and you can get a chair that's um, more curvy and it's a little bit more decorative and it's got sort of the wooden what would you call it cane mm. sort of spirals and it's round and it's got a cushion on if you think about the values that that chair embodies it's mm. it's it's a playfulness it's a frivolity mm. um, um, a creativity versus if you take a chair say a modernist chair that's very much s- sort of straight legs square simple back no cushion mm. wood what sort of values do that does that chair embody mm. and that's more of a logic um, and a, f- a f- sort of more formal mm. um, and everyone reads these objects differently. You may see that chair and think something else. And, mm. and we, Alain de Botton says we surround ourselves by the objects that sort of articulate these things that we feel like we lack in ourselves. Or, he, interestingly, he says that beautiful objects or spaces are a material articulation of certain of our ideas of a good life. Or the most beautiful objects sort of embody the most attractive attributes that we see in humans or animals. Mm. Uh, It's just interesting to Mm. think about that in terms of, that's his take on beauty, everyone's got it. Yeah, that's just one It's interesting to me that he makes this connection between beauty and happiness. Mm. And then I mean, if you look at those birds that collect beautiful things, humans are the same. We collect beautiful Mm. things, we like beautiful things. But that he makes such a clear link between beauty Mm. and happiness and how when something is beautiful, something can make you more happy. And I remember this um, case study now that they did. I can't remember the specifics, but we'll search it and put it somewhere afterwards. Um, but where they took the two, two streets in a very um, violent neighborhood and they cleaned every week, they cleaned the one street and they put flower pots and they painted the, um, the wind, like what you call it, kusaina, um, door frames mm. and uh, the doors and every week they made it beautiful made it beautiful made it beautiful and then the entire 
community in that street spirits lifted and they all started becoming part of the project of making it beautiful because it changed something in them and in Korea there's this movement where they also do this and in spaces in the city where people have moved out of that spaces because maybe some big movie cinema opened in another hapong or you know there's like other spaces in the city that's more attractive and then those places that are abandoned all the artists move there and the government support them and they make it an art village and they start painting murals and they put flower pots exactly the same thing they create this really really beautiful space and it pulls people so it's so clear that there is this link between beauty and happiness yet we don't always think of that in our everyday life you know like my partner sometimes needs to be convinced that the room needs to be beautiful mm. in order for us to be happy in this space. Mm. Yeah. And interesting, he also speaks about um, cathedrals and big bridges and big architectural mm. sort of design feats as us also being drawn to those in a sense because mm. they have these, they basically can withstand life-destroying forces of mm. wind and rain. And, mm. um, and we're also drawn to those sort of structures because they they almost seem to be able to outlive or they are immortal in a sense in our hum humanly world of, of being mortal and mm. they seem slightly able to withstand all of these forces so it's another yeah. thought beauty and then also things that are very strong and, and like big all inspiring, inspiring just because yeah. they can yeah. stand there for years yeah. and years yeah and even that if you think about traveling and how in mo especially in europe um church how the churches is the one thing like i'm now thinking of the sagrada de familia in, in barcelona yeah. and how people who might say otherwise like i'm not really interested i don't i'm against the church yeah. in fact like i don't want to be in a church but then you go in there and you you have this ex almost religious quote <laughs> experience of and it's an overwhelming experience and a sensation um that you might not get in every like if you think about a Dutch Reformed church on a on a like Platteland yeah. kind of Dorby yeah. where it's that seventies style brick wall. It's it's a different type of value because while Gaudi it's like the potential of it still being built and maybe people attach something to their own aspirations and mm -hmm. I don't know, there's like different things you can say, but it is interesting how I, I remember Alain Alain de also wrote about how he had to differentiate between an engineer, the job of an engineer and the job of an architect. Mm. Um, because, I mean, they are kind of, they have this tension between them of the functionality and the mathematical thing of actually making it work. And people always say, like, engineers hate architects because they make life difficult for mm. them. But then also about why why is it so important that we need that extra when, when the first house that introduced, like, I don't know, I can't remember the examples, but he gives all these examples. Um, yeah, and it's just so fascinating to start understanding why this is important. Yeah. I think that's also what we said in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And to start being conscious of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, we, yeah, we can, we've spoken very conceptually and very philosophically about spaces and objects, but um, yeah, actually relating it, going and relating it to your everythings that is in the backdrop of your life every day and mm -hmm. and what so as you could speak about a certain drinking glass that promotes a sense of well-being or a certain chair or the roundness mm -hmm. to an object that that gives you a feeling of warmth mm -hmm. or comfort mm -hmm. um or, or the, the texture yeah. or, the or a textured mm -hmm. mug 
which I love. Yo, what's your favorite mug? Let's talk about that. Shall we, shall we chat about it? <laughs> yeah. I, it got me, well, the reason why I brought up mugs is it got me thinking, I think I've told you guys this before, but um, at home home, so my family's home, we've mostly got plain white mugs. Mm. Um, I know you get homes where everyone's got like their own like colorful <laughs> mug, but we've just, my mom's just got like a minimalist approach to mugs. Um, so both white mugs, but the one um, slightly different shapes. The one is a little bit more modern and it's got a, a, a square look to it and um, the handle is um, slightly more square as well. And then there's another mug that's got a heavier base um, and it's got a slight sort of upturn on, on the rim and then a very round handle. Um, and I'm immediately drawn to to the one that's more rounded. And it was just it just got me thinking, very interesting. I mean, they're so similar and they're both white. There's mm. nothing much exciting about them, but what draws me to one versus the mm. other? And that also led me into the conversation about values and objects and how we read objects. But if I had to, there's one mug that stands out <laughs> um, beyond the white mugs. And it was a mug I think that my mom got for her birthday or something. Um, and it's it's very textured. It's got, an, it's got like a stone color to it, heavy on the base. Um, I think it's got a, a, a woodpecker or an oxpecker little painting of a bird um, on the side, round handle, um, nice thick rim to drink from. Um, just what makes me think of that is Ilsa Crawford did a, a little short clip on YouTube on a drinking glass. Mm. And she says, we drink out of a glass or a mug every single day. And it's a very intimate act, putting something in your mouth. and actually consciously designing for something that you're quite intimate with and you mm. don't realize no. <laughs> but, but the rim of, of you don't the lip. put your plate against your face exactly like but a you, fork i guess is the other one but but you're putting a, the rim of a glass or the rim of a mug into your mouth and, and how does that feel in your mouth and how does that promote a sense of well-being so um yeah and if you think about um the, the texturedness it, it i guess it speaks to an, an organic nature and that speaks to age or time it, it, it not just being newly made but it speaks to maybe and that's quite grounding I think if, mm. if something feels slightly old maybe that's why we're drawn to all of these vintage mm. or older objects um, because it's sort of withstood an amount of time mm, I also um, feel like a lot of the vintage things that I like are um, made in a different way so yeah. they also feel like they're going to last longer they have lasted all this time so the difference between a glass that's, I don't know, slightly plasticky glass, you know, like sometimes you get a glass and it just feels not as nice and fancy and then you get an older glass and you can see that it was maybe not as mass produced, mm. I think, as well. So mm. there's a uniqueness in older things as well because, I mean, I have a tea set and maybe half of the tea set has been broken and now I have only a few of them left and I don't, I'm not going to get it anywhere else. Mm. So that's also something that I'm projecting onto these older objects, definitely. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's a sense of nostalgia in yeah. it. There's a sense of, you know, the memories that mm. certain objects mm. carry in certain families. I mean, Absolutely. think about generations of people who had all this china mm. and glassware that was just in closets for years. Mm. to protect there's something so holy about mm. some of those cups and then on the other hand I'm thinking of like those I don't know why the church is coming up so much for me today <laughs> but like those church cups that you drink after church where it's like those thin 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 mm. white I love that texture oh, of that like, yeah. thin porcelain cups um, 
But there is something about, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think, as you were saying, I was like, what is this underlying value mm. that we seek? Like you, like you said, because in this world of, of mass production or maybe of everything is so similar about certain aesthetics that and like modernist modern aesthetics that you it looks the same everywhere and mm. what underlies this desire for something original and different and mm. organic do you think yeah and i i have also a cup that i really like my favorite cup it's actually from a set that my grandmother gave me and i remember this these cups from when they used to live on the farm outside Priska still and it was her special cups um and she used to also they were in a drawer and only when the fancy people come she would take them mm -hmm. out and they not just cups it's actually mugs so they're quite big but they're also round and they were handmade and hand painted so there's an earthiness to them but also they're slightly flawed because they're yeah, painted perfect. and they're painted on the bottom as well and you can't put them in the dishwasher you can't soak them you have to like be really aware of how you deal with these cups but then I also have this feeling of wanting to use things. If I have stuff, I'm not going to keep it in drawers for years and years mm -hmm. and years. So now I'm negotiating in myself the sentimentality that my grandmother gave these cups to me with, with understanding they're for the fancy people. Mm -hmm. But I'm using it every day. <laughs> yeah. Like one of them I took out of the box and I'm using that cup every day. And interestingly enough, that cup and also my other favorite cup are also a few people that I live with's favorite cups. They've just become yeah. everyone's favorite cups mm. and now they're like in scarcity most of the time because someone has used them. Yeah. But I think it is that that it's not instant and you have to you have to be a little bit different with these cups than with the, the normal cups that are can break or and, and I have a favorite wine glass that's also when you speak about thin it's like thin 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 and it's really beautiful crystal there's an interesting shape and once at a vintage store I bought two of these beautiful glasses and because they're so thin they make like a very high pitched sound and Tabu and Yana figured out that you can break a glass with your voice if you sing on the frequency of the of the sound and those two glasses were broken by their voices which also then made which I'm like no, Loki a little bit proud of despite the Nicolines so it's we true. broke her but the thing is yeah I feel I feel bad but also it was so amazing because Tabu but he's the artist he's, that does our music for the podcast and we'll actually just linking he does he makes yeah. music Nicolines partner and I didn't think I could keep up with him on that I like the fact that I could reach the note was amazing for me but it's so funny how you have this memory of the, the beautiful vintage glasses and you attach so much to it and I mean we broke it but I have such a fond memory of breaking that glass <laughs> because when I think back about that night it symbolized for me that the time we spent in that home together also and we were Hugo, all singing it was, was Hugo that the breaking of that glass was Hugo for me 100% and for you it was a destruction so <laughs> we did it twice first Tabu figured out with the one glass he can do it on a different occasion and then he told Yana and Yana was like no you lie it's not true and then he was like come let's this. prove it I need to see this I think I even I recorded one video of him but it's on like a VR recorder like okay. a tape recorder um, where he breaks this glass so my memory of this uh, glass was it's a beautiful glass I bought with for steel at a vintage shop and Tabu remembered that he broke the first one and then broke the second one with Yana in an experience of Hugo definitely <laughs> we should cheers to that yeah. next time but also yeah. like the yeah what was I um 
Oh, I was thinking about like the Greek tradition of like breaking the plates yeah. as well. So there's also something of like that's probably also an ex- a cultural experience of hygge yeah. with the I don't I'm not sure about what it all symbolizes, but there is something of the the keeping and the breaking and that almost on a metaphorical level for me brings that morality point yeah. back in yeah. it again. How yeah, because my different... grandmother is very disturbed by the fact that they break in Greek. She doesn't go to Greek restaurants because of the breaking of yeah. the plates. It's like too unsettling, you know. It's not part of culture. Or like, like mosaic. My yes. my um, mother-in-law has always takes broken glasses and she makes objects with them. So for her, it's again, there's something crafty about the fact that it's breaking broken and, and putting yeah. those memories back in a different shape. In Japan, um, I know of this gebruik um, custom yeah. that if something bre- breaks, you stick it back together, but then you paint the cracks with gold and it gives it new meaning so that you know that this object was broken and repaired, but the magic is in the reparation of it. And then um, something else that also came to mind was when I went to Korea, it was my first encounter with bathing in public spaces. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember the first they also call it saunas but mm-hmm. it is the korean bathhouses so there is sauna spaces but this one sauna was just so incredible because we went into the mountain we drove far into the countryside and went into the mountain so it was only locals and people that come there for their weekend experience and it's compl- it's whole families that come for the entire day for bathing and then you put on this special suit it almost looks like a prison suit here where it's like orange you put this special bathing clothes on and these special flip-flops and my friend showed me a way how you tie your um your towel around your head so it looks like little ears so it's like very cute and you're going to relax now and then they you go to bath first and it was an amazing experience to see all these female bodies so comfortable chatting and scrubbing and like scrubbing each other and it's just it's so it's so um casual and so huga also because everyone together and then there's the circle that i went to where they had a fire pit in the middle and then you do a yoni steam which is essentially putting coals under a box and then you sit on it and you steam your vagina and then all the older women it was actually like a circle for older women but they took me in because i'm a westerner and people wanted to meet not really westerner but that's what they thought (laughs) they wanted to meet me and um they told me stare into the fire stare into the fire and i was like what and said no it's good for your eyes and it's good for blood circulation Mm -hmm. and all of that and that feeling of sitting around the fire has taken a completely different meaning for me now after that experience from how we experienced sitting around the campfire and playing music mm. which I didn't really experience in Korea ever that was like the only kind of sitting around it and then the sauna is these um, clay houses they're beautiful and the texture is so so stunning because it's like clay yeah. and then they have seven houses in a row and then they make a fire in a different house every week or every month they move the fire Mm. so then the closest to the fire is the hottest and you go inside and it has dim light and everyone's wearing this orange and you lie on this wooden pallets in this house and my friend told me to put my legs up against the wall and I just remember this feeling of the mud and the clay under my feet and this this silence because you go in and meditate essentially and it was it was an incredible experience and then the last room we went to was big pink salt crystals and you lie on top of it the floor heats the crystals underneath and you lie on it and then you pack the crystals on your body where you have pain and this is our 
goodbye ceremony of this very close friend that I made there because I just lay down and she packed all these crystals on my womb and on my she knew I had shoulder pain and on my shoulders and it was like the silence of this older sister I called her on me which is older sister and she like packing all of these crystals Incredible. onto my body so also that like sacred experience that in the context of South Africa doesn't exist and then you go there and I felt extremely vulnerable and extremely seen also because it was just so normal to be in that space in that way yeah oh, beautiful yeah. yeah and like also the it would be interesting like we've spoken about Ruga, we spoke about or it, you said it relates to the Dutch word gezellig and I think like maybe something about Ubuntu in an African context like relates a little bit to that sense of like togetherness mm. through each other. And if you think about circular forms, it's also very African mm. in a certain way, like sitting around in the, in, the, in the crawl. So it would be interesting to explore a bit more of our more indigenous understandings of aesthetics and spaces, mm. especially with all our different cultures and how they, mm. I mean, it would be so interesting to know I mean, the fact that we have the word gesellig in Afrikaans, yeah. and I didn't really know what, what it, the English equivalent to gesellig is. You it's can't really translate it. It's the same with hygge, there's not really a translation. You can have five words that sort of allude mm. to it, but it's mm. interesting that it's, it's not really captured. The yeah. space almost has to do the translation yeah. or the experience yeah. of it, like the same with your Korean ex- yeah. experience. Yes. I mean, contrast that to the sauna at a Virgin Active, where people oh. are like, everyone is kind of standing there and they're locking his naked bodies, but it's like harsh, cold lighting. Yeah. Uh, when you were saying that, I was like, that's that, that awkward memory. Mm-hmm. That's maybe a space that's not promoting well, no. well-being and it's weird. It's like flipping awkward yeah, if you have yeah. to undress in a... In no, a does gym. it feel like a cleansing, cleansing or renewing kind of ritual? Or like, like celebrating with yeah. your body because you're almost like in this weird... have the towel and you have to undress in a weird, awkward means. Some people are very open, but then that also makes other people awkward. So there's not a communal... And how amazing that a space can change a ritual or behavior. You said you've never experienced bathing in that sense mm-hmm. and just being put into that space with those people. Yeah. made you be open up completely and, and be vulnerable and, and have a beautiful experience. This exercise, almost like a, a big part of this podcast, is also just practicing that consciousness. Even by speaking about our objects, mm-hmm. we were able to yeah, relate to them in a different way. So I think it's a nice exercise that you can do when you... It doesn't have to, you don't have to go out and biases and objects, but just consider the relationship we have. Think about why you're drawn to certain objects that you use every day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's an interesting exercise. Yeah, and how you curate your space to yeah. um, create a sense of well-being. If there is a chair in a space that aesthetically looks nice, but the sun falls on it and you can't see the TV from there or something like that, consider moving it because... Things that always have to look like they do in the magazines. That's very much about comfort mm. and what what is good for you in mm. your space. Mm. Yeah. yeah, sure. And yeah, thank you. I think this was a very yeah the the concept of huga. I'm really gonna take away and mm. thinking about objects that promote togetherness. Mm. Um, have a look at it. it's called the Little Book of Huga by um, Make Vike Viking. I'm not sure how you say that. Make Viking. He's the CEO of the Happiness Institute in Copenhagen. Um, and they've done studies on, on why the Danes are so happy and Hugo is a, a very central um, 
thought on, on, on well-being and happiness and how, how they bring Huga into their lives every day. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. so much, Georgie. So lovely to chat to you. It's been amazing. Nice to be in person as well. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me. Great.